Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Well, as you know, we've, as a church, been going through uh, the book of Exodus uh, together lately. Uh, Or maybe you don't know that. Maybe you're just here in town for the weekend, and so uh, I'm announcing this to you. We've been going through the book of Exodus uh, together. But today is the Sunday before uh, Christmas weekend, so next Sunday will be Christmas Eve. And I thought I'd give to you a Christmas message uh, this morning, but I want to base it on the book of Exodus. And what I want to do today is I want to think about three parallels with the Christmas story as revealed in the New Testament that began in the Old Testament pages of the book of Exodus. Uh, There are characters that you will find in both Exodus and the New Testament Christmas story. There are events that you will find in Exodus and the New Testament Christmas story. And there are images that you will find in Exodus and the New Testament Christmas story. Uh, These uh, people and events and images, I think, are all designed to help us recognize that what God did in the book of Exodus is ultimately and totally fulfilled in what Jesus did when he came and lived and died and rose from the grave. In other words, Jesus is the one who came to perform true exodus for us. A great passage of scripture from where we would get this or a concept like this would be John chapter 8. It says in John 8 verse 34 that Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's Exodus terminology. That's Exodus language. The son has come to set people free. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I was telling the first service that uh, as a pastor, you know, when I go to pastory kinds of things where there's other pastors that are there, uh, you know, we talk shop and uh, just like it would be in your profession, we talk about our churches and stuff like that. One of the common questions that gets asked of me and, and other pastors is, what are you excited about in your church Uh, right now. And uh, I'm an introverted person. I don't like questions like that. And so, you know, I, I, for years, I would just get asked that question and I kind of felt like a deer in the headlights. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's a big list of things I should be excited about. What are they? And I'd start scrambling. And then by the end of uh, giving my answer, I felt like they probably think I have the worst church in the world and there's nothing exciting happening in our church. But over time, what I began to realize is that there are different kinds of pastors. Some pastors emphasize the teaching of the Word of God. And what I began realizing is that there are lots of things I'm always excited about in our church, but I am generally always excited about whatever book of the Bible I am teaching at the moment. And right now I'm teaching through the book of Exodus. And I got to tell you right now, the book of Exodus is my favorite book in the whole Bible. 
I mean, it's just been amazing to me. It's been refreshing my heart. I begin seeing the whole of scripture through the lens of what God did in that original Exodus. And one thing that I've tried to unpack there is that the Exodus that Israel went through is a type or a prefiguring of the great Exodus that Jesus won for us when he arrived. Just as the Hebrews were set free, so Christ has come to set us free. Just as the Hebrews were meant to serve God instead of Pharaoh, so you and I are meant to serve God instead of sin. And just as the Hebrews were introduced to fellowship with God at his tabernacle, remember, God didn't just set them free so they could be free. He set them free so that they could build a tabernacle and form a society around a relationship with God. So we are introduced to close fellowship with God through the beautiful work of the cross. To put, to put it another way, to experience... Ex- <clears throat> Exodus Forgive me I mean not like in a sinful way To put it another way To experience Exodus Is to have God set you free So that you can know God uh, To experience God Experiencing Exodus today is to experience God's age-old mission to bring humanity, including us as a group and you as an individual, into a closer relationship with himself. God sets us free so that we will know him. Now, of course, the method that God chooses in order to bring this freedom into our lives is the incarnation of his son, born in that Bethlehem stable so many years ago. The Christmas story is, in other words, a story of Exodus, the Exodus, which the original Exodus foreshadowed. And I think one of my convictions is that uh, when the Christmas story becomes familiar to us, uh, it can lose some of its teeth if we're not careful. Uh, We can be comforted by the story of the wise men or the star or the shepherds or Anna or Simeon or the birth of Christ in the uh, stable. We, We can be comforted by these things in a mere sentimental way without remembering that it's a story of God going to war, cosmic war against the powers that separated us from himself. He came to win Exodus for us. So as I said earlier, what I want to do today is think about the characters that are found in both stories, the events that are found in both stories, and the themes that are found in both stories. All right, so let's just move through those three concepts. Number one, let's think about the characters that are found in these Exodus stories. There are overlapping characters uh, in both of these stories. Um, Of course, uh, we'll talk about the baby uh, in the manger. But I think first we could recall how both of these stories, I don't know if you remember this, but both of these stories, the book of Exodus and the story of Jesus' birth, 
they begin with a historical genealogy. Uh, at the beginning of the book of Ex- Exodus, you have uh, the writer giving to us a story or an, a genealogy reaching all the way back to the grandson of Abraham, a man named Israel or Jacob. And in the book of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, some of you are disappointed by this. You're like, I'm going to begin reading the New Testament. This is going to be so exciting. And you get uh, generations of genealogy to start the story. Again, both stories beginning with a genealogy going back all the way to Abraham. Uh, A second uh, character that you'll find in both stories is not a person in and of themselves, but a world power that is on the scene at the time. In Exodus, a pharaoh, of course, is the figure that's leading Egypt, sitting on the throne and holding sway over the entire region. You know, the Hebrew people are toiling in life under Pharaoh's tyrannical hand. But in the New Testament, you see something very similar. It's not Egypt, but it's the Roman Empire that dominated the world. And Israel is found trudging along as an occupied people living in subservience to that foreign power. And of course, in Luke's gospel, it tells us that Caesar Augustus, the reigning emperor at the time of Jesus's birth, he gave a command that all the world should be registered in their hometowns. It was a flex move. It was a a way of saying, you go back to your city of origin to be counted. And Joseph and Mary were under uh, that legislation. They were at his mercy. Uh, Both stories... They depict the tyranny that people were under in the same way. What do I mean? Well, in Exodus, you remember that there's the terrible episode where Pharaoh, fearing that he's losing his power, fearing the multitude of the Hebrew people, he gives an edict designed to curb their growth that all the baby boys of the Hebrew ancestry should be killed. Uh, In the New Testament, we see something very similar. The local king, a man named Herod, he grew fearful when the wise men told him that the king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem. And what did he do? He commanded that all the baby boys in Bethlehem be killed. Both stories also include brave women. I don't know if you noticed that as we were going through those early chapters of the book of Exodus. Of course, the first set of brave women that are mentioned in Exodus are the Hebrew midwives. They defy Pharaoh's edict. Uh, But then uh, Moses' older sister comes onto the scene rather quickly. Uh, Miriam is her name, and she's used by God to bring baby Moses back to his mother. And Miriam does not leave the scene early on in the book of Exodus. Later, in her older years, she becomes an established figure in Israel, a real leader, teaching them to worship God for his great acts of deliverance. I think she gets co-writing credit for the song of the sea that they sang after they went through the waters of the Red Sea. Now, Moses and and, and, uh, Miriam, they had a brother, you guys know this, whose name was Aaron. Aaron became the first high priest in Israel. And the book of Exodus tells us that he was a married man, and his wife was named Elisheba. Okay, so you have Miriam, Aaron, and Elisheba. In the New Testament, the Christmas story 
begins in Luke's gospel by going all the way back to a priest, just like Aaron was a priest, who is married to a barren woman named Elizabeth, a New Testament uh, name for Elisheba. And uh, an angel speaks, of course, to a young woman named Mary, the new Miriam. The new Elisheba and the new Miriam take center stage as the mothers of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. Both stories also depict their events as initiated by God's loving heart for his people. It's been a while since we've been in Exodus chapter two, but at the end of Exodus chapter two, it gives us this little parenthetical depiction of God's heart. The people of Israel were crying out, they were in despair, and it says that God heard their despair and God saw their despair and God answered their despair. He heard and he remembered his covenant with his people. Well, in the New Testament, there are two figures that show us that God remembered and God heard his people. Uh, John the Baptist's dad was that priest named Zechariah. Zechariah is a name that means the Lord remembers. And after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph dedicated Jesus to God in the temple. And while he was there, an old man named Simeon, who we're going to talk about on Christmas Eve together, he rejoiced that his eyes had seen God's salvation. Simeon's name means heard. God remembered and God heard, just as he had in the Old Testament era in the original Exodus, in the New Testament era as well. And of course, one last character that appears in both stories, we can't miss this, is the Savior baby. In Exodus, Moses is born during a time of peril. One day, he grows to deliver God's people. Uh, Jesus lives the same story. In the New Testament, he's born during a dark time, and he grows up to save God's people. All right, my, my intention here is not to uh, just geek out with you for a second, like bombard you with name after name and parallel after parallel, just so that we can, uh, you know, be stoked that, oh, the book of Exodus, you know, over a thousand years before the gospels occurred or were written foreshadowed all these incredible and beautiful events. I mean, to me, it is amazing and it is good to geek out about at least for a second because it shows us that there is this God behind the entire story that is weaving all these things together for his purpose and aim and goal. But today I want to ask you three questions. One question each with each one of these points we'll consider. And here, I want to ask you the question, as we've thought about these different characters that are found in both of these stories, I want to ask you the question, what role might you play in someone else's exodus? What role might you play in someone else's exodus? Now, like I said earlier, exodus is not only the moment of your initial salvation. We need thousands of exoduses throughout our lives. I remember many years ago, the, the pastor who pastored the church before me, his name was Roger Scalise. And for a couple of years, Pastor Roger, uh, he took me under his wing and he mentored me. And uh, I've had 
different people give me counsel and input uh, throughout my life, but I've never had someone be so direct as uh, Roger was with me. He was, he, was, he was very gifted at communication, and uh, he was very clear with me, and we would sit together on Monday mornings, and uh, he had a list of maybe 12 different attributes or characteristics that a good pastor needed to have, and he would write those on his whiteboard, and each Monday morning, he would go down the list, and he would give me a grade on how he felt I had done the previous week, complete with smiley faces and frowny faces and you know, check marks and thumbs down and all that kind of stuff. And I remember at first, I kind of was like a little bothered by this. Like, this is a little direct, don't you think? Like, can't you soften it up? But over time, what I realized was there are some things that God is trying to do in my life, and he is using this man as a vehicle, as an instrument to produce those things in my life. Hundreds of times, Thousands of times, God has brought people into my life to help me experience a deeper exodus. Sometimes it's been friends, counselors, uh, books or authors, uh, my wife, my children. They've served as a, as a way to, for, for God to pull me out and deeper into a relationship with him. So that's my question for you. What role might you play in someone else's exodus? God used people like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He used people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. Ultimately, it's God who is producing that exodus, but he's using these individuals in our lives to help us. This, I think, highlights the importance of being around the right people. You know, the Proverbs tell us that when we walk with the wise, we become wise, but that the companion of fools suffers harm. Who are you putting yourself next to? What kind of people are you putting yourself around? What kind of voices are you listening to? It also tells us in Proverbs 27 that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And this sharpening effect is often a miniature exodus that a person is going through. So many of us have found what we needed to change, to grow, or to be transformed because we're in the presence of good people in their example. Paul agreed with this when he said, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good character. Okay, so what role might you be playing in shaping someone's character for good? Someone's miniature exodus. You know, you might be the one to tell them about Jesus in the first place, absolutely, you, you might help someone overcome addiction. You might be the encouragement another parent needs to raise their children well. You might help show the way for a classmate to be honest and hardworking. You might be the one to show a coworker what it looks like to be free of laziness or anger or, or a host of other workplace cancers. You might be the coach who serves to help one, someone start working out again. If you're open, God will give you thousands of opportunities to be a shepherd who guides his sheep, a lighthouse that shows the way through treacherous waters, or a firefighter who rescues someone from the flames that are consuming them. Uh, but I wanted to ask you today, what role might you play in someone else's exodus? All right, so that's the, that's the first section I wanted us to think about. 
Okay, the second thing I wanted to think about are the details that are found in the Exodus story and the Christmas time story. Uh, Exodus details. Thank you, Manny. Manny's always got my back, and that's really good because no one will mess with me. Uh, there are lots of details that are found in the Exodus story and the Christmas time story. It's in these details that the Christmas story overlaps most fully with Exodus. Uh, I've mentioned already that the, both stories begin with uh, the, the massive and dominating foreign power of Egypt and then of the Roman Empire. I've already mentioned the brave women at the beginning of both stories. But I've not yet mentioned the wailing mothers that are found at the outset of both stories. Uh, in Exodus, there is a whole generation of mothers who fear that they are going to lose their baby boys. But in Matthew, it happens. The mothers of Bethlehem, they weep with loud lamentation for their children, Matthew tells us, refusing to be comforted. In other words, the New Testament's Herod, he became the new Pharaoh in the opening pages of the New Testament, out to destroy God's people, lest he lose his grip on the, on the throne. But that's, of course, not the only detail that you can find in both stories. There are lots of others that overlap. Now, for instance, in Exodus, God delivers his people by appearing to a wilderness shepherd, Moses, in the burning bush, and in that burning bush is the angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, an angelic choir appears to a group of shepherds watching their flock at night, telling them that a deliverer uh, was a newborn baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Another similarity is found in the way that in Exodus, the Israelites, remember when they left Egypt after the Passover? The Egyptians came out of the woodwork and they gave to the Hebrew people gold and silver and garments. It was a payoff, a kind of back wages, a way to say, don't come back. You know, hopefully this funds your trip so that you can permanently leave us. After they were out in the wilderness, they received, as we saw last week, wisdom from Moses' father-in-law, a guy named Jethro. He was a non-Israelite man from the East. Well, in the New Testament, baby Jesus received gifts of gold and, as one little boy said in our Christmas video, Frankenstein <laughs> and myrrh uh, from the wise men who came from where? From the East, just like Jethro. Another detail that's found in both stories is that Yahweh led the people away from a dangerous king only to wait in the wilderness for a period of time before going into the promised land. Same thing happened when Jesus was born. The angel warned Joseph in a dream to flee a mad king in Herod. They fled for a period of time down into Egypt and then after a period of time, they then returned to the promised land. The major difference in those two stories is that in Exodus, they fled uh, from Egypt, 
But in Jesus's story, his family ran down to Egypt, stayed there for a time, which fulfilled Hosea's prophecy that out of Egypt, I will call my son. In one sense, it was redemption for Egypt. The place where Israel had been enslaved became the place of refuge for the Holy Family. Another parallel in both of these stories is that the angel told Joseph to name Mary's baby Jesus. Now, we know Jesus' name, but Jesus is the Greek version of the Old Testament name Joshua. The original Joshua, we saw him last week fighting against the Amalekites. He was the one who would, at, at the end of the day, bring the people of Israel into the promised land. Moses, in other words, served as a forerunner for Joshua, just as John the Baptist served as a forerunner for the new Joshua, Jesus. John was the last of the law and prophets, and like Moses, he could not take the people into the promised land of God's favor. Only Jesus could. Another similarity between these two stories is that In Exodus, Israel passed through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, and then their story really gets going. It's like that's what birthed them as a nation, and then the rest is history. Well, the New Testament story of Jesus, the same thing happens. It gets going once he's baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. On and on we could go with the parallels between the life of Jesus and the events of the Exodus. In Exodus, there were 40 years of testing through the wilderness wandering for Israel, and Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness dealing with temptation and testing. Exodus included the performing of many miracles that decreated or destroyed, but when Jesus came, his miracles created and healed. Exodus tells us that after they became a multitude wandering in the wilderness, Moses organized the Israelite community to communicate God's law to the people. Jesus went up to a mountaintop as well, prayed about it, chose 12 disciples to organize the new community that he was establishing in the church. Exodus tells us that the multitudes followed the cloud and ate the manna that God provided in the wilderness. In the New Testament, they follow Jesus out into the wilderness where he feeds them miraculously with bread multiplying in his own hands. The Exodus event led Israel to war, to defend their existence and gain land. And Jesus said that at least in his first coming, he did not come to bring peace on earth, but to bring a sword. Exodus tells us that Moses taught everyone the law he'd received on the mountain. And when Jesus came, isn't it interesting that he taught over and over again this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, the new way of life before God. Israel started to receive the promised land when Jericho's walls fell down in the book of Joshua. And at the end of Jesus's life, he predicted that Jerusalem itself would be destroyed and that the wall that separated Jew and Gentile from each other, not to mention God, would be destroyed. And the conquest of the promised land began with God telling Joshua that everywhere Israel placed their feet was theirs. And the Gospels conclude with Jesus telling his disciples on down to us that wherever you go, 
I will be with you as you make disciples of all nations. All these details should help us make the connection. Just as the Old Testament saints went through their exodus, we are to go through ours, and so many of the details of their story might be found in ours, which leads me to ask my second question this morning. What details of your life and world make you long for Exodus? I mean, a lot of the things that I mentioned that are found in both of these episodes, they're sad events. They're difficult realities. But they were designed to produce a thirst or a hunger among the populace looking for the great deliverer who would come. Uh, In my house, one of my favorite snacks, and I eat way too much of it, is I love popcorn. I love popcorn so much. I eat it as a meal replacement a lot. And um, when we have popcorn, I eat, uh, it's like an embarrassing amount of popcorn. It's just too much. I should not eat that much. This is kind of a time for me to confess my sins to you guys. And, uh, but with the popcorn, lots of salt, tons of salt. And uh, of course, when you eat something like that, what happens to you? You get thirsty. You can't just not have, you know, some sparkling water or a Coke or something like that to go along with that popcorn because the salt, it's producing a thirst within you. Sometimes the details of our lives are meant to produce a thirst in us for the exodus that God wants to win. What details of your life and world make you long for exodus? I'm not asking about departure from a difficult thing. I'm not asking what, this, what in this world makes you long to leave it. What I'm asking is what details of your life and world make you long to be closer to God right now? If that's what Exodus is about, knowing God more, and if Israel became disillusioned with Egypt before they learned about God, if it was the darkness of Roman dominance that cast its pall upon the first century people that made them thirst for Christ's coming, what elements of your life drive you to want to know God more today? What relational pressures are happening for you right now that perhaps could drive you to him? What unreasonable expectations? I've been thinking about this concept lately. So much of Uh, people's struggle to be satisfied and joyful in life is because of unmet and unreasonable expectations. Expecting things that they should have never expected in the first place. But what, what, what unreasonable expectations have led you to become disillusioned and in need of hope? What political frustrations could throw you into deeper fellowship with God? What physical ailments could cause you to cry out to the living God. And since so much of this Exodus stuff happens in the realm of the mind, what what grooves, what habits, what beliefs does God want to pull you out of so that you might know him more? What elements of your life and world could make you long to experience Exodus so that you could know God? Okay, number three, let's move to the last one. I want to consider very quickly the themes that are found in both Exodus and in the New Testament story of Christmas. Uh, The book of Exodus is found in image form 
all throughout the life of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John. Uh, For instance, in John's Gospel, that's where we learn what Jesus' very first miracle was. John chapter 2 tells us that his first miracle, this is so cool, he decided that his first miracle would be to turn water into wine at a wedding. It's like at first glance, just this very frivolous miracle. There's no leprosy being healed. There's no uh, poverty being dealt with by feeding the masses. There's no raising from the dead. It's just they're having a wedding. They didn't plan it right. The people drank a little too much, and they ran out of wine, and Jesus decided to take water and turn it into wine. You might remember the story, like the master of the festival. He's like, everybody else uses the good wine first, and then when everyone's a little hazy, they bring out the bad wine. But you have saved the good wine until now. That's what Jesus does. Apparently, when Jesus makes wine, it's really good. (laughs) That's his first miracle. Well, that's interesting because the first plague was Moses turning the water of the Nile River into blood. It's like I think Jesus is signaling through his first miracle, yes, I'm here to produce exodus, but it's a very different kind of exodus than Moses came with. That was a time of great war. Here, I'm turning water not into blood. I'm turning water into wine. I seek to bring people in. Another similarity in John's gospel with the Exodus is that, and we saw this at the beginning of the book of Exodus, Moses, he came to a point where he had to leave Jethro's flock. Remember, he ran to the wilderness. He took care of his father-in-law's flock for 40 years. He was a shepherd. Well, Jesus is depicted in John's gospel. He calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his flock. In the book of Exodus, another similarity is that uh, Israel seemed to have been born at the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus said that people need to be born in John's gospel, not only of the water of their mother's womb, but through the waters of the Spirit. In Exodus, another comparison Uh, the people of Israel were led by a pillar of fire through the wilderness. That that was God's presence among them. But when Jesus came, he declared himself in John's gospel to be the true light of the world, making himself out to be that pillar of fire for God's people. On and on we could go throughout John's gospel. Jesus said he in John's gospel, is the one who provides living water. That has to be an allusion to the water that Moses produced. Moses could satisfy physical thirst, but Jesus came to satisfy something deeper inside of humanity. Moses in Exodus is seen as going up to the mountaintop to receive the law of God, but John presents Jesus as the greater than Moses through whom we receive grace and truth. And when Moses went up to that mountain, residual glory from God shone upon Moses. You guys might remember this. We haven't studied it yet in Exodus, but when Moses comes down from God's presence, he has residual glory from God radiating from him, an afterglow, if you will. 
At some point, he becomes embarrassed by the fading nature of that afterglow, and he begins covering his face when he comes out of God's presence. Jesus goes up to a mountain that we now call the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James and John, and the glory of God does not shine upon Jesus, but it shines from within Jesus out of Jesus. Moses gave Israel God's directions to build a tabernacle, but John's gospel begins by telling us that God became flesh and tabernacled among us. And in the ultimate theme shared by Exodus and the New Testament, Jesus arrived as the true Passover lamb who would take away the sin of the world. This is who the baby in Bethlehem is. He's the very son of God who has offered himself up for our sins. He's made the way for us to know God He's become our light, our shepherd, our glory. He's become our change agent. He's become our true vine from whom we derive all that's needed to bear fruit. And during this Christmas season, the last question I want to ask you is this. What aspects of Christ do you need to seek for further exodus? Or to put it another way, how can Jesus bring you further into relationship with God. You know, if, if I were a craftsman, and what, what I've heard from craftsmen is that for every job, there is a, there is a right tool. You, you can try to accomplish the job with the wrong tool, but there are the right tools for the job. And Jesus, he always is what is needed to bring us into deeper relationship with God. For instance, do you need Jesus' light to illuminate some aspect of your shadow self, some part of your heart that you've kept back and kept hidden. Jesus is the light of the world. He wants to expose that. He wants to bring you out of that captivity. Or maybe what you need is Jesus' living water to deliver you into true joy, one that's not based on circumstances or doing a bit better than the people around you, but is real and inward. Or maybe what you need from Jesus is his glory to shine forth from you for real transformation. Maybe you need him to rekindle friendship and fellowship with Father God. Maybe you need his shepherding expertise at this season in your life to guide you to the pastures that he's prepared for you. Maybe you need him to take the dullness of everyday life and turn it into the good wine of fellowship with him throughout the day. Maybe you need him to deliver you from law and into grace and truth. Or perhaps you're like me and you say, I need him to do all of the above. I need all of those things in my life. Whatever you need, Jesus is the answer. That baby held by Mary, admired by wise men and celebrated by shepherds, he's the one we need this Christmas time. He did not come to provide us fodder for church plays and Christmas carols. He did not come to give us warm feelings like a hot eggnog latte for the soul. No, Jesus came to deliver us. He came to liberate us. He came to obliterate all that stood between us and knowing God in a meaningful and tangible way. Jesus came to do what Exodus is about. He came to give us Exodus.
And for that, we should thank him in prayer. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.